Anything in here, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Matthew. Last week, we started a new series in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's fitting that we start this series uh, during this time of season since uh, it talks about the birth of Jesus, and that is exactly what we are looking at at this time. Um, and so Matthew is written so that we would know that Jesus is the promised king who has come to save us from our sins. And this morning, we're going to particularly look at the birth of Jesus. Uh, and so we'll be in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We'll be there in a few moments. Now, as many of you know, I'm a big superhero fan, uh, primarily Marvel, not DC. Um, there's, there's reasons for that. Um, and, and when you look at it, all superheroes kind of have their, their origin story. Uh, Peter Parker was bit by a spider, and his DNA gets intertwined with that of a spider's DNA, and um, he becomes Spider-Man. And then when his grandfather was murdered, he realized, and you all know the line, with great power comes great responsibility. And so therefore, the birth of Spider-Man comes about. Steve Rogers was a, was a scrawny kid who continually was beat up. He wanted to join the military, but was continued to be denied because of his many medical issues. However, change of circumstances came about. He was chosen to be part of a special unit, was injected with a super serum, and became Captain America. And so whenever you look at these superheroes, there's, there's some type of origin story that they come out of, uh, either personal tragedy, pain, or conflict. There's some type of serum accident or invention that's created that gives rise and birth to these superheroes. But when we come to Jesus and we look at who he is, we see that his origin story, that his birth is, is not like any of these superheroes. Jesus didn't become who he was because of a personal tragedy, pain, or conflict. Um, rather, what we see is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and he comes in his infinite power. He enters into humanity willingly and joyfully so that he would save humanity from their sins. And so this morning, we're just going to come into the birth narrative that Matthew has given us, and, and I just hope that we can look at it with, with fresh eyes and see the Christmas miracle that really has been given to us by God himself. And so I want to go ahead and encourage you, uh, let's stand, and we'll read this text together. Each week we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so to remind us that this word comes to us inspired by God for the purpose of building us up as a church, that we would know who he is and that we would live obedient lives for him. So here we go, chapter 1, verse 18 of Matthew. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you that we get to celebrate the birth of your son, the fact that your son, who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, that he has come into this world to save us from our sins. And so, Father, I ask, give us wisdom today as we look at your word. Help us to see with fresh eyes the story of your birth. God, I pray as we come into your passage, Lord, convict us of sin. Show us the hope and the beauty and the truth of your son, Jesus. May we know that he is the true meaning of Christmas. May we marvel at the incarnation this morning. God, I pray that every person here would trust in Jesus Christ today because of what we read in your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So this morning, I want us to begin by looking at the very middle of our text. We're going to look at kind of the mission of Jesus, and we see that Jesus came to save us from our sins. We see that verse 21, an angel comes to Mary, and she will have a son whose name will be Jesus, and we are told that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' mission was to save sinners. In fact, if you were to go forward a little bit in, in the story of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals uh, a paralytic, and he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this doesn't mean that there's actually righteous, sinless people in this world, but his point is he has come to call those who will acknowledge their sin, confess their sin, and repent of their sins. And one thing we, we said last week as we looked at the genealogy of Jesus is that the greatest problem that faces humanity is not something outside of us, but it's what's inside of us. It's our sin. In fact, uh, Dutch theologian G.C. Burkauer, uh, this is what he said regarding sin. He said, no real genius is needed to see life's battered and mangled pieces before us. And no particular wisdom is required to appreciate how profoundly abnormal life can be. Talking about the effects of sin. Again, regardless of one's political, against, about one's social or, or racial position, if one spends a few minutes on any local news program, no one can say it's all well within this world. And the truth is, you don't even need to go to the news station. You can go to the local coffee shop, and if you just eavesdrop on conversations, which I know we all do, um, you can hear conversations on, on gossip, slander, pride, covetousness, lust, and so much more. And you don't even need to go to the coffee shop. You could literally just listen to your own heart, because in our hearts, we, we're angry, we're bitter, we, we, we wrestle with frustration, sadness, depression, loneliness. We're scared. We're fearful. We're sexually immoral. We can be impatient. We, we seek to justify ourselves and manipulate others for our good. We have sin in our hearts. 
When we look at this world, it's because of sin that there's divorce, there's abortion, there's murder, rape, sex trafficking, brokenness, cutting, insecurity, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and every other kind of evil. Sin runs rampant in this world because it's in the heart of every person. Another theologian said, when, when sin entered the world, it ruined enti- the entire creation, converting its righteousness into guilt, its holiness into impurity, its glory into shame, its blessedness into misery, its harmony into disorder, and light into darkness. I mean, just think about it. When, when we look at the world, do we not see sin everywhere? In fact, when we turn to the beginning of our Bibles, we see the story that God created Adam and Eve. And he placed them in a garden. And he placed them there that they would enjoy his blessing and his presence and his rule. But rather than obey God, we see that they, they sinned against God. They rebelled God. They rejected his rule. And they broke his commands. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 5 regarding this. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through one sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. One of the doctrines that the Bible teaches is called original sin. And this doesn't refer to the, the original sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. Rather, it refers to what we receive because of Adam and Eve's sin. Think about it. As parents, you know this. Um, when you have children, some of your traits, some of your qualities are passed on to your students or to your children for good or for bad. And just as parents pass down certain traits, so sin has passed down from our first parents to every single person born into this world. Which is why the Bible can say we are born in our sin before we have even done anything. We are sinful. Because we come from Adam, we're sinful. Just as poison mixed in with water will affect every single drop of water, so every part of our souls have been affected by sin. Every single person born in this world is a sinner. It's because of that we are not righteous and we cannot please God. And so when we come through Scripture... It's written in such a way that we would see our sinfulness and that we would acknowledge our sin and so that we could say, yes, I know that I am a sinner. And so I ask you the question, do you know that you are a sinner according to God's word? Do you know that you stand guilty before God apart from God's grace? Do you agree with his word? Will you agree with his word? This is a truth that we cannot ignore. Avoid or discard. I took, my, I took my van into the shop this last week. You all know when you take your vehicle into the, uh, to the repair shop, you never know what's going to happen at that moment. So the technician calls me, and he says, I have good news for you. And he said, well, Mr. Jackson, we, we found something. And you know when the technician says that, it's not that it's good it actually, it works fine. There's nothing wrong with it at all. Rather, he says, um, it's really lucky you brought it in when you did. Otherwise, something else would have happened. And I'll tell you what I was not feeling at that moment was lucky. I knew at this moment that whatever I thought it was going to cost, it was going to be multiple times more than that. 
No one likes that phone call. Nobody, nobody wants that phone call. But we all know that if we ignore those noises in our cars, that matters only get worse. Now hear this. The consequence of ignoring our sin is far weightier than simply just more car parts and more financial matters. God's word says it's everlasting torment. Because of sin, all of humanity is on a conveyor belt and we're moving towards destruction. This is why we have Christmas. And this is why Matthew says this is why Jesus came. Jesus came on a mission and the mission is to save sinners. And so Matthew wants us to know that there's hope. That Jesus has come to save us. So we might say, well, how? How does he do that? And what we see in our text is that Jesus was born in a special way. He was conceived in a special way. And that brings us to our second point. What we, what we see in our text is that Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. Now, betrothal is not something we necessarily practice today. Back there in the first century, a couple would be betrothed to one another about a year before their actual marriage date. Now, the betrothal was a serious commitment between both parties that could only be severed by a divorce. The bridegroom would have already paid the dowry, so Joseph has paid, you know, he's given some goats, given some cows, whatever, whatever the price was for Mary, he has paid the price, and they would be known within the village as husband and wife, even though they would not actually be married at this moment. And it's at this time during their official betrothal time, they're called husband and wife, although not officially, that, that Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant. And a lot of times when we come into this, we talk a lot about the scandal, but Matthew is quick to know there's no scandal that's here. In fact, he's, he's adamant that we would know this, and we see this at the end of verse 18. We read, the child and Mary has come from the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 20, an angel appears to Joseph and says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. As quickly as Matthew tells us she's pregnant, he's just as quick to say, there's no infidelity. There's no sexual morality. What has happened here is supernatural. The Holy Spirit has brought life into the womb of Mary. Now, if you've read your Bibles, you'll know that what the Holy Spirit does here is, is similar, in a sense, to what he does actually in other parts of Scripture. In fact, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 1-2, we would see that the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters at creation, and he brings life into this world. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes about how we are saved and believe in Christ. And he says that the Holy Spirit is the one who hovers over our spiritually dead souls, regenerates us, gives us life, so that we would see Jesus and believe in him. And so here in Matthew, the Holy Spirit is the one who hovers over the womb of Mary so that she would conceive baby Jesus. In fact, if you look at the, the record of Luke's gospel, this is what he says. Mary asked the angel, how, can I, how am I going to be pregnant? I am a virgin. To which the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And as Christians, what we do is we call this the incarnation. It's when the, the Son of God, who has eternally existed with the Father and with the Spirit, he enters into creation and he becomes flesh. Now exactly how this takes place, it's, it's mystery. Just as the Spirit can bring life into creation and just as he brings life into our spiritually dead souls, there's, there's somewhat of a mystery in there for us. And as he brings life into the womb of Mary... There's mystery, but I want to give just three points about the incarnation this morning. Number one, the incarnation is about addition. When Jesus becomes flesh, he did not cease in any way to be God, nor did his humanity and, and deity combine into something new. Remember, we, we talked about uh, like Spider-Man earlier, when he's bit by the spider, his DNA is intertwined with spider's DNA. So in a sense, he becomes something not human, not spider. He's something in between both of those. But scripture is clear that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is the God-man. When Jesus became flesh, he added humanity to himself so that two natures are joined in one person without change, without separation, without confusion. And I might say, well, well why is this? Why is this so important? Because remember, what is our greatest problem according to Scripture? We're sinners. But why are we sinners? Who do we come from? We come from Adam. So Jesus now comes fully human, as human as you and I are, but he was placed in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, so he is holy. He does not have a sin nature. Jesus is righteous in every way. In Jesus, we see what it looks like to be truly human and enjoying the very life that God has created us without sin. Jesus presents us a new humanity, one that's not from the line of Adam. This is huge. This is what we need. We're all in Adam, thus we're sinners. So how do we get out of Adam? Now we have a new humanity, someone who is born without a sin nature. In fact, so this is what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says. The author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of these things. He became exactly like you and me, so that through his death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus became flesh so that he would free us from slavery to sin and death. Now you might say, okay, so how do we get into the line of Jesus if we're born into the line of Adam. And if Jesus was placed in Mary's womb, then doesn't that bring up some other problems? Like, like how is he also from the line of Joseph? Because if he's not from the line of Joseph, why did we go through the genealogy in chapter 1? Because he's not really a son of David, a son of Abraham. So it seems like this incarnation brings up a host of other problems. So that brings us to point number two. The incarnation points us to adoption. And this is huge here. In verse 20, Matthew makes sure to remind us that Joseph 
is of the son of David. Notice as the angel comes to him, he says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. So Matthew's saying, remember, Joseph is of the line of David. And because Joseph marries Mary, he then adopts Joseph as his son. And Matthew wants us to see this because both in verses 21 and in 25, Joseph is the one who names Jesus. He's adopted Jesus as his own son. Thus, Jesus becomes the legal and rightful heir of Joseph. Thus, now he is a part of the line of David and the line of Abraham. So don't miss this. Jesus became flesh so that by adoption, he would become the rightful king of God's people. And if you remember, Jake preached a couple of weeks ago as we went through the book of Galatians that when we believe in Jesus, we also experience an adoption. Do you remember that? We're talking about what does the Galatians say about uh, the gospel. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, this is what we read. That Jesus came to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sends his spirit into you the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So put this together. Jesus became flesh so that by adoption, he would become our king. And he saves us so that then by adoption, we would then become part of God's family and thus no longer in the line of Adam. Do you see it? This is huge. The, the Bible talks about, remember, when John, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, that we, we, need to create, we need to experience a new birth. We need to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, so you want me to crawl back in my mother's womb? Like he's totally not getting it. And Jesus is like, no, I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. You were physically born into the line of Adam, and thus you're guilty. But what you now need is to be spiritually reborn into the line of Jesus. And that can only happen because Jesus became flesh, adopted into the family of David, adopted in the family of Abraham, so he would be our king. And thus, when we believe in him, we're adopted in the line of Christ, into God's family, that he would be our elder brother, and that the God would be our father for all of eternity. This is the Christmas miracle. Do you see it? Like Jesus saves us from our sins and brings us into God's family forever. So let me, let me just say this. If you're adopted here, praise God. Like pray, you know something that others of us, are, we know as we come and read, but you tangibly have experienced something is one of the greatest truths that we can experience in God's word. Your earthly adoption is a beautiful picture of our heavenly adoption in Christ. Never, never forget that. Be bold in sharing your adoption because your adoption points us to a much, much, much greater adoption that we all desperately require. So know that. Next point. This, this is incredible. The incarnation is eternal. Like, the incarnation was not a, a temporary 
experiment. Like Jesus didn't come through his mission. He get up to heaven. He's like, whew, done with that. Pull off like the, the fleshly wardrobe and be like, never going back there again. But rather, what we see is that when Jesus rises from the grave, he didn't cease to be human. He continued to be a physical being. He appeared to his disciples. He walked with them. He talked with them. He ate with them. Jesus has forever added humanity to himself. Do you know that? Like, I don't think we've all actually thought about that. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told this. Jesus stands at the right hand of God as our high priest. He can only be our high priest if he actually represents us in humanity. He comes as our high priest, ready to give grace and mercy to everyone who calls upon him. In the book of Revelation, we are told that Jesus will forever dwell with the church, his bride, as the lamb who was slain. Being called the lamb refers to his earthly, his fleshly self. Don't miss this truth. At Christmas, we see the beauty and the worth of humanity. Scripture tells us we're made in God's image. God created us and he delights within us. How do we know that? The incarnation. Like when we look at the story of God's word, we see that there's, there's a host of angels that also rebelled against God. And yet Jesus did not become an angel to save the angels. Those who rebelled against him will forever suffer an eternal destruction. But with humanity, Jesus becomes human so that we who rebelled against him, we who rejected him, could be saved and have everlasting life with him. So notice, whether, whether you spend Christmas this season with family and friends or, or, or don't, and you're by yourself, there is a God who loves you, and he sent his son Jesus in the flesh to die on a cross for your sins. Do you know that? Do you know that you are loved by God? There's no greater miracle than Christ coming in the flesh that we'd be saved. There's no greater present. There's no greater act of love. The question is, do, do you believe in Christ? Do you know him? Do you know that you are loved by Jesus? Out of love, God sent his son to come into the world to save sinners so that we would trust in him, so so have you trusted in him? And I encourage you, if you're a believer here today, have you told your friends and your neighbors about Christ? Christmas is an incredible time of year to tell your friends about why we believe in Jesus. As you, as you make cookies and pass them along to your neighbors, you can, you can tell them, we love Christmas. Can I tell you why? And tell them about the present of Christ. Tell them the greatest gift that you have ever received is the gift of Jesus Christ. The incarnation declares the love of God. And as Christians, we ought to know that, to love that, and proclaim that. One more point. Jesus has always been God's plan to save his people. I want us to see this here. Notice in verse 22 that Matthew will say, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, Matthew's going to use that phrase about 
ten times in his gospel. He wants us to know that Jesus did not randomly show up in history. Jesus isn't some like backup plan where plan A, B, C, D, E, and F, and all these other plans failed, and so now the Father and the Son are sitting together going, I don't know, what do you think? What should we do? Well, what if you go to earth and die on a cross for them, and maybe that will save them? Rather, what we see is that Jesus has always been the plan. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies, and we could spend a great deal of time looking at them, like in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God enters into the garden, and he, and he speaks to Satan, he speaks to Adam, he speaks to Eve, and when he speaks to Satan, he says that there's going to come a day when the seed of the woman will come, and he will crush the head of the serpent. And that's the first glimpse of the gospel that we have in the Old Testament. And so at that moment on from Genesis 3, we're looking for there's going to come someone born of a woman who will one day overcome Satan and overcome sin. And we're waiting the entire time as we're going through the Bible. Who is this one born of a woman? In fact, if we were to go to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians, Paul does something really neat there. He actually looks before creation, and he said, in God's foreknowledge, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that don't think that your salvation began at creation or at some time after creation. God knew and planned your salvation before he ever created the world. And so as we're coming through prophecies in the Old Testament, they're given to us so that those who would first read them would have hope as they look forward to the future. And they're given to us today that as we read them, we would see the faithfulness of our God, the power of our God to keep his promises, and that nothing can thwart his promises. And so we turn here to the one that Matthew quotes. And Matthew quotes from the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is what we call a major prophet. Major just simply means he wrote a lot. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. It's a big book. And Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. At the time of this prophecy, the king of Syria and the king of Israel have joined forces to attack the southern kingdom of Judah, of Jerusalem, which Ahaz is the king of. Now, Ahaz and all of Jerusalem are terrified. It's the giant army coming against them. They have no chance of standing up against this army. But the prophet Isaiah shows up and tells the king, do not be afraid. Have faith in God. Isaiah then comes to Ahaz and says, God has said, ask whatever sign you want, and God will give you a sign that he will deliver you from these enemies. Wouldn't you love that? Like, blank check. You want a sign? Whatever you want. You want to know what college you go to? Ask for a sign and God will give it to you. You want to know what job to take? Ask for a sign and God says, I will give you whatever sign you want. So that's the promise that he gives to Ahaz at this moment. And what do you think Ahaz does? He's like, no, I'm good. I don't need a sign. Now, why does he say this? Because Ahaz actually doesn't have faith in God. 
He doesn't trust in God. Rather than trust in God, he's putting literally all of his money into the kingdom of Assyria. And he wants to hire Assyria so that Assyria will come and defeat these enemies. So he takes all the gold and all the things out of the temple, and he's paying Assyria to come and save him. He's trusting in his power, in his might, rather than the all-powerful sovereign God. Ahaz does exactly what a sinful man from the line of Adam would do. He rejects God. He's a worthless, wicked king. And so what happens? Well, the crazy thing is, Ahaz's plans work. Assyria will defeat Syria, and eventually Assyria will defeat, um, will defeat Israel and bring them into captivity as well. But hear this. This is a, this is a dangerous thing when God actually allows our worldly plans to work out. I want you to think about this. That only serves to solidify our pride and our thinking that we are strong enough, that we are wise enough on our own. We don't need God. And there are many people who think they do not need God because they've been able to lead what might be considered successful lives. They continually plan on and rely upon their bank account, upon their wisdom, upon their resources, and because of just the way things have turned out, they continually go, you know, life works out pretty good. I don't know why I would need God. Let me say this. Praise God if you've experienced pain and brokenness because your plans did not work out. God has tangibly showed you his need, your need for his grace. So Ahaz at this moment, his pride has just simply hardened all the more. So we turn back to, we turn back to, to Matthew. And we see that Ahaz rejects God's offer for a sign, but God gives a sign anyway. And we see it in Isaiah 7. And we read the words, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so we have that in Isaiah 7. And then just a little bit from that, in Isaiah 9, we read this, verses 6 and 7. We actually read this last week for our Advent also. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God wants us to know that the Ahazes of the world will not stay on their throne forever. One day, a righteous king, born of a virgin, will come, and he will always and perfectly trust in God. And they will call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Now, most likely, at the time of this prophecy, all the original readers and listeners are going, okay, this means that God will be with this king. And that will be great. We won't have a king who rejects God, but God will be with this king, and this king will follow God. And while that is true, when we see that Jesus is this king, we see that it means so much more than that also. Because God is not only with Jesus, Jesus is God. 
Ahaz perfectly represents the sinful heart of humanity. Rather than trust in the infinite goodness and grace and power of God, he says, I want to trust in my resources. I want to trust in my wisdom. I want to trust in my creativity and my sinful solutions. And I want to encourage you, just consider how you have been living. Is this your life? <clears throat> have you been trusting in your plans, your resources, and your money? Have you relied upon yourself rather than God? If you're an unbeliever, if you've not yet trusted in God, then that's exactly how you live at every moment. But even as Christians, there are times we can functionally live like this. We acknowledge that Jesus is our King, and He's our Lord and our Savior, and yet, oftentimes we're not in prayer. Oftentimes we're not seeking counsel from God's people, and we're just seeking to how to make plans on our own depending upon ourselves, And so if that is you today, I encourage you to repent. Repent and trust in Christ. Remember that he is our king. Remember that he is, um, he rules in everlasting righteousness. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. His government will never come to an end. We can come to him always, and he will perfectly and rightfully always guide us. There's nothing in this world that can ultimately provide salvation. And in all of creation points to God, and yet know this, in your sinfulness, we want to reject God. I think one of the clearest examples of that in Scripture is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember that part? If you need to, go back, read John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead for four days. Jesus shows up. They roll away the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. Crazy thing is, Lazarus comes out, walking, and everyone sees it. And then at the end of that chapter, we're told the religious leaders, the very guys who saw this, they're like, what are we going to do? And they're not like, man, we need to give up our thrones. We need to give up our places of position. We need to bow before this guy. No, they're like, man, we got to get rid of this guy. He's really powerful. He threatens our positions. We have Jesus, the King of Kings, rising people from the dead, and they're sitting there going, how do we get rid of him? In our hardness of heart, we deny Christ. We rebel against him. We seek for any solution other than Christ. Christmas reveals humanity's great need. It reveals how sinful we are, that there is nothing you or I can do to save ourselves, and yet it also reveals God's extravagant grace. So remember that. Christmas reveals our great need. We are absolutely helpless. We need help. God sends his son Jesus as extravagant grace in the flesh that he would save us from our sins. Our only hope to be saved is through the Son of God becoming flesh, rescuing us from our sin, adopting us into his family so that we could have everlasting life. There is no other way. You all might have trees up already. Hopefully you do, and if you don't, your tree should be up soon. It's getting late. But very likely... As you are likely as you put gifts under this tree, you'll open those on, on Christmas Day, or some of you do silly things and open up the day before Christmas. If you have any questions about that, come talk to me. We'll, we'll fix that. 
But I'll tell you, you're probably not going to really remember any of those gifts next year, right? Like, what was your favorite gift seven years ago? Nobody knows. You probably don't even have it. And if it was an electronic thing, it was awesome at the time. Six months later, there was a new version, and you wanted it. So realize this. Gifts under the tree are great, but the gifts under the tree are all a shadow pointing us to a far greater gift, the gift of Christ. And if you are a parent here, know that and teach that to your children every day leading up towards Advent. As you you open up presents on Christmas Day, start with the Christmas story. Remind your family, so fathers, husbands, shepherd your family at this time. Read them the Christmas story, and your kids are going to be like, we just want presents, I know. There's a far greater present that they need to know. And while they might not appreciate that in one year, but when you do that every single year, over the years, they will learn and remember that there is a great present so that one day when they're parents, they will do the same thing with their kids because they will finally have eyes to see that what's what's under the tree is not ultimate. But Christ is the one who has saved us. Christ is the great miracle. Christ is the one who offers us everlasting life so we could have salvation with him for all of eternity. Jesus is not only the plan of our salvation, but he is the prize of our salvation. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We are saved to be with him, and we are promised to enjoy him forever lasting. So know that. That's what we celebrate at Christmas So trust in Christ today, and if you have trusted in him, pray for boldness that you would share the true meaning of Christmas with your friends and with your family. So let us pray now, and we will partake of communion. Father, Father, we come to you now in the name of Christ. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you that Jesus left heaven, set aside his throne and his robe and his glory, and he entered into this world as a baby, that he would save us from our sins. And Father, I pray that everyone here would know the true meaning of Christmas, and we would not forget it. I pray that we would trust in you. I pray that we would know that in Christ we are adopted into your family. God, we praise you for adoption. And God, I thank you for every person here who is adopted. And again, I pray that God, you would remind them that their adoption points to the far greater adoption in Christ. God, if there's anyone in here trusting in themselves, in their plans, in their resources, convict them this morning. May they see the futility of their pride. And may we have eyes to see the beauty of your son, Jesus, and that he is the greatest gift. And Lord, I pray for every student here, whether they're in this room or they're downstairs in Children's Church. God, help them to know that all the gifts under the tree are shadows of the greater gift of your son. God, give the students here eyes to see that which is truly wonderful and great and insurpassable in value, your son, Jesus. In your name, Jesus Christ.